We're going to have our Bible reading now, um, and we're going to be reading from Ruth chapter 3 today. If you don't have a Bible with you, we'd love for you to follow along. There should be a hardback black one in the pew rack in front of you. And that, in that Bible, we're on page 269. Again, Ruth, all of chapter 3 in the pew Bibles. That's page 269. Ruth chapter 3. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative, with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the, flesh, at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he's finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, All that you say, I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk, and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. And he said, Who are you? And she answered, I'm Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you have asked. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight, and in the morning, if he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you then, as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, Bring the garment you were wearing and hold it out. So she held it, and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city, and when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, How did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the, this matter turns out. For the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. Some of you celebrated uh, 4th of July this week, didn't you? In this country. <laughs> Do you know what I always say on the Sunday after the 4th of July, the Independence Day? Um, I always say you're welcome. That we gave your country... We gave your country to you, right? <laughs> You've not read the history books. Oh, I'm sorry. Okay. Um, so, so my, my in-laws uh, are in Seattle, and they, they always go big when it comes to 4th of July. They have a big celebration. My father-in-law, I think he's got 30, 38 first cousins, and they all seem to descend on 4th of July and have a great time. Everybody chips in with the food, and everybody chips in with the fireworks. Here's what they had this year in the garage. Isn't that crazy? The, the fireworks show was so long that people got bored and went inside the house. 
can you imagine that? They're absolutely enormous. But then they, then they, then they called me. I had some, of the, uh, had some of Quincy's cousins call me up and say, enjoy going to work today because we've got a day off. And I said, you know what? I will enjoy it. And I'm going to celebrate Britain's generosity as I go. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Kind of. Kind of. <laughs> Okay, we're going we're gonna to jump in. We're going to jump into the book of Ruth. And you know where we're up to? We're in Ruth chapter 3, aren't we? And here's where we've been so, for, so far. Ruth chapter 1. There was heartache, there was pain, there was loss, and there was grief. As we're supposed to be reading through Ruth chapter 1, we cry along with the characters. Ruth chapter 2, we see Ruth in need and in poverty, but we know there's something amazing on the horizon. So in chapter 2, we're not crying, we have a knowing smile. And then in Ruth chapter 3, how do we go through this? Well, Ruth chapter 3 is all about tension. So we've gone from crying, we've gone from the knowing smile in chapter 2, to feeling an unbelievably tense chapter, wondering if we're going to get the resolution that we're looking for. Now, now, you know, you know when you watch, uh, you're watching a drama on TV, and before they dive into the drama or the next installment that week, you get like a little one-minute synopsis of the week before, don't you? In order to catch you up with the story, it shows you, here's what happened with that character, here's the, here's the tension, here's what they said, here's what you've got to look forward to. So let's do the same thing. Before we jump into chapter 3, let's just jump into chapter 2 ever so briefly to remind ourselves and bring us up to speed. Now, chapter 2, remember, we had Ruth and Naomi coming from Moab into Bethlehem. This is Naomi's hometown, and they had absolutely nothing. They're in poverty, they're in an extreme, extreme place of need. And so the big question that hangs over Ruth chapter 2 is, well, who's going to rescue them? Who's going to be the helper? They're in this place of poverty and need. They've got absolutely nothing when they come in to Naomi's hometown. Who is the one who's going to rescue them? And then we get to meet this exemplary, amazing, gentleman, responsible character who goes by the name of Boaz. And so chapter chapter 2 highlights this wonderful guy. And so what we read about him is he's He's worthy and he's welcoming, he's, he's upstanding, he, he takes responsibility for those who are in need, he champions the underdog. He's, he's a great guy, this guy called Boaz, so he's welcoming and worthy. Then we read about his unconditional kindness. You know, you know when, he, when he gives Ruth what she needs, he gives her that, that barley grain to go home with, he's, he's not expecting anything in return, there's no strings attached here, it's just an unconditional kindness. And we also saw this guy, Boaz, he, he gave refuge, didn't he? He provided security. He put his big arms around Ruth and Naomi and said, look, I'm going to look after you here. Here's some provision for you. He gave her the security. Now, this is in the time of the judges. It's a really vulnerable time, especially if you're in Ruth and Naomi's shoes. But he looks after her. But there's something we found out about this guy called Boaz, which, which provides a thread of hope. I say more than a thread. This is, this is more of a shout of hope here. We find out he's something called a redeemer. Your Bibles might say he's a kinsman redeemer. You remember what we said about that? A kinsman redeemer is basically a family member who rescues. So if you're in Ruth's shoes, your husband's gone, you're in a tough position. You're going to need, you're going to, need to be part of a family. You're going to need provision. You're going to need somebody to give you a family, to raise a family with, and to continue on the name of your late husband and with Ruth, her father-in-law as well. So she's in a tough place. What she needs is another family member who's related to her dead husband to bring her into her family. And it sounds really strange from a 21st century context. Kinsman Dreamer, brother-in-law, how are we supposed to understand this? But the whole motive behind it is to look after the vulnerable. 
That's how this works. So a kinsman redeemer would have been the closest male relative to her husband, takes Ruth and Naomi under his wings and looks after her. So normally that would be what Ruth's husband's brother would look after her, but what happens? He's dead as well. That happened in Moab. So this now goes to the extended family, and it turns out that Boaz is related to Ruth's husband, Malon. So this is the kinsman redeemer. It could go to the extended family now. So if the question of chapter 2 was, who's going to look after them? It's Boaz. Oh, hold on, he's a redeemer. The question that hangs over chapter 3 is this. Well, is, is Boaz willing to be that redeemer? I mean, is Boaz going to be the one who takes Ruth under his wings? Is he the one who's going to provide for her? Is he the one who's going to give her safety in this vulnerable place that she's in? Is he going to help her? Is he going to be the kinsman redeemer? Now, now this question is kind of muddied a little bit. Well, it's really muddied because here's the key thing we've been told. Ruth is a Moabite. Now, you remember, if you, just, if you just scan your eyes over chapter 1 and chapter 2, what you will find is the word Moab and Moabite coming up over and over and over and over and over again. I mean, it almost feels like we're being patronized by the author. We're not, but it almost feels like that when you're reading it. What, you've just told us she's from Moab. Oh, yeah, she's a Moabite. There you go again. Ruth from Moab, she's a Moabite. Did I tell you she comes from Moab? So that means she's a Moabite. So you scan your eyes across. You just find this emphasis from the author She's a Moabite. And remember who the Moabites are. They're the outsiders. They're the people who who have a frosty relationship with Israel. Those are the people who are framed in a pretty negative light in the Old Testament. And the kind of people, God's people, shouldn't really be spending time with. You see, Ruth is a Moabite. That means she's an outsider. Ruth is one of them. So you see how this is kind of brought into a bit more tension. Yeah, Boaz is a redeemer. Will he be the redeemer? But here's the thing, will, she be a red- will he be a redeemer of someone who's a Moabite? Will Boaz, with wide open arms, welcome an outsider? Will Boaz go that far as to welcome a Moabite into his own family? That's the big question that hangs over chapter 3. Now, now as we work our way through chapter 3, you'll see it's kind of carved up into three parts. Chapters one, verses 1 to 5 is Naomi's plan. Uh, verses 6 to 13 is Ruth's implementation of that plan. And verse 14 to 18 is the waiting, the waiting game. Okay, so we've got the plan, the implementation, and the waiting. Now, now as we move our way through chapter 3, two things to keep in mind. Number one is how Ruth's faith is framed. So look for clues of her faith. What kind of faith are we seeing exhibited in the life of Ruth? And then secondly, as we go through chapter 3, look at how often she is called a Moabite. Now, we've had it over and over and over and over again in chapter 3. How many times is she called a Moabite? So let's, let's dive into the first three verses as the scene is set of Ruth chapter 3. First three verses go like this. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter... Should I not seek rest? This word rest is the the same word as home in Hebrew. Should I not seek you a home for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? Is he not our relative with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Here is Naomi's plan. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself. Put on a cloak and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make, your, make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. 
So, so this is Naomi's plan. Naomi's plan is clear in one way, but unclear in another. So, so how is it clear? Well, we know exactly what the plan is about. She wants Boaz and Ruth to be together. She wants Boaz to be the redeemer, and she wants Ruth to find the husband. So that's, that's clear what Naomi, want, Naomi wants. So, so she's concocted and orchestrated this plan. There's the purpose. But the thing that is unclear about this is why exactly Naomi decides to go about it this way. We don't know. You, you kind of think to yourself, Naomi, couldn't, couldn't you have been a little bit more patient and had this conversation in daylight where there was less room for suggestion from others? Less room for them tripping and falling here? Why, do you, why have you got this plan where they are together at midnight in a dark place and only two of them? Naomi, what's going on? So that, that's not clear. We, we don't know why Naomi does this, but we do know what. We don't know why she does it that way but we know that she wants Ruth and Boaz to be together. So that's her plan. It seems to be, from my perspective, like she's, she's micromanaging Ruth's life. This is the way it's going to go. And she's trying to get her in this position where she can then make an offer to Boaz. That's, that's the plan, right? So here's the next bit of the plan, and it gets a bit ambiguous here. Verse 4. But when he lies down, here's the plan, observe the place where he lies, and then go and uncover his feet. Not about you, but that kind of, when I first read that, it raises some eyebrows, right? You just kind of think, is that, um, is that some kind of a Hebrew euphemism? Or is it some Hebrew hidden veiled way of saying sleep together or get together? Is that, is that what that is supposed to mean? Uncover the feet? Well, I'm sorry to burst our bubbles that, that scholars who are 10 million thousand times cleverer than me and understand Hebrew says, we don't know what this means. We, we, we actually don't know what the uncovering of the feet mean. It could also be translated as the uncovering of the legs. And, you know, it's, it's a little bit suggestive. You just go, well, how much of the legs? I mean, how, what, how much are we supposed to understand here? I mean, it could be that it, it, it's a statement of authority. I mean, it could be like a, a request to Boaz. We really don't know what it is. We might want to read into that and raise our eyebrows and think, what's going on here? But we really don't know. But what we know is that this is Naomi's plan for Ruth. Now, how does Ruth respond to this? Of course, Ruth is willing, verse 5, all that you say, I will do. Now, we've seen that. So there's the plan. Now, from verse 6 onwards, we see the implementation of that plan. Read this, verse, verse 6 onwards. And she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, that means satisfied, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Look at this, it's quite secretive. And then she came softly and uncovered his feet and laid down. So she is doing exactly what she has been told to do. Boaz is lying at the end of the grain pile. It's likely that he's guarding the harvest. So they've been working hard. They've been threshing out the wheat and the barley. So there's a big pile of grain. The stalks and the chaff is gone, and he's guarding it. And so she shows up. She does exactly that, uncovers his feet, lies down at the end of his feet. And he's there at the threshing floor. Now, the next bit makes me laugh because I think we might respond the same. It's very, very dark. Verse 8. At midnight, the man, that's Boaz, was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. Now, this, do, you ever, do you ever wake up in a place, like, like you, you're on holiday in a hotel, or maybe you go out camping or whatever, and you wake up in the middle of the night, and you expect when you open your eyes to see your own bedroom, and then you see something unfamiliar, and, and you feel startled, don't you? And there's that couple of seconds of confusion, and then you remember, oh, that's where I am. 
this kind of stuff happens a lot in my household because my boy Jude will be kind of, he kind of sleepwalks just a little bit every now and again. But what he'll do is he'll get out of bed, he'll walk down the hallway into our room and stand in the pitch black at the side of my bed and just stand there and wait. Eyes open, half asleep, so he doesn't know what he's doing. I'm fast asleep, I can't hear him, and then he murmurs. And so, of course, I open my eyes, and then I've got this face right there with bright eyes. And, ah, Jude, what are you doing? So I have to lead him by the hand, back to his bed, go back to sleep. So maybe you know that's startling in the middle of the night like that. I certainly do. But that's Boaz right there. There's this woman at his feet. Ah, what's going on? He is startled. But then what's Ruth's request? What does Ruth say? How does this plan continue? Look at verse 9. This is really significant. He said, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Now, we might think to us, this whole whole uncovering of the feet, that's suggestive. Now, if that was suggestive, then surely this spread your wings over me. Is is that even more suggestive? I mean, we didn't know what was going on with the feet stuff, but the spreading of the wings, does does that mean what we think it does? Well, sorry to bust your bubble again, no. You see, this word wings is also the word um, corner of a a tunic or a cloak, or it can mean the edges of a cloak. So so a guy's tunic back in these days would be a big, long tunic, and on each corner of the tunic, there would be just a little tassel. And this little bit down here was called the wing, or the corner of the garment, or the edge of a garment. That's what that bit was called. It's quite a significant part of, of a man's clothing in this time. It would have been something that Jesus wore. Then the end of Malachi. It's the end of the, end of the Old Testament, and there's that amazing prophecy. The son of righteousness will rise with healing in his wings. And then you remember in Jesus' life, there's the woman who's been unwell for 12 years. What does she grab? The edge, the wing of his garment. She must have read the prophecy. There will be healing in his wings. So, that, so there's something significant about wings here. So, so this is this is this spreading of the wings is taking of the garment and putting it over her. But it's it's quite a symbolic act. Now, now here's the thing: in the Old Testament, the uncovering of a wing really does mean to do it. But this doesn't say the uncovering, does it? It says the covering of the wing, and that's something very different. I'm going to flip forward to Ezekiel chapter 16 here. Ezekiel chapter 16 and uh, verse 8. These are the, the Lord's words to his people. Help us understand this. Because these words, they're about commitment. It's about a statement of loyalty. Look, Ezekiel 16 and verse 8 reads this. When I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at an age for love, and I spread the corner of my garment, the wing, over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord, and you became mine. So so in Ezekiel 16, the the way the wings are talked about there, or the covering of the wings, is a statement of loyalty, as a symbolic act of commitment, or or betrothal, or engagement. That's what the covering of the wings means. So when Ruth goes in to see Boaz and makes this request, will you spread your wings over me? That's her saying, will you marry me? That doesn't make sense in our culture, because usually it's the guy's responsibility, unless it's a leap year. Girls, next year is a leap year. You might have your opportunity there. But, but this, this, is Ruth's, this is Ruth's proposal, isn't it? She's coming and saying, will you spread your wing over me? Will you be the redeemer? Will you be my husband? Will you be the one who looks after me for the rest of my life? Will you be that Boaz? Now, does Boaz spread his wings over her? Not just yet. 
Not just yet. Look at verse 10. Here's his response. May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, and that you have not gone after young, other, after young men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. A deep breath. He's saying he'll do it. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are what? A worthy woman. It's the same word that's been used of Boaz. A worthy woman. And now it is, it's true that I am a redeemer. Yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain here tonight, and in the morning he will redeem you. Good. Let him do it. And if he is not willing to redeem you, then, uh, then as long as the Lord lives, I love this, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. Again, this feels a bit suggestive. It, it feels, you just kind of wonder, did something go on between these two? Now, of course, there, there, is, there is sexual tension in this passage. There, there is, there is, there is this, this sense of chemistry between the two. But there is no suggestion right here that they acted out of that. They, they seem to act with responsibility and self-control and restraint. Boaz does seem to be honorable, and he doesn't seem to take advantage of her in this very vulnerable situation they're on. Boaz doesn't seem to do that. I, I know there are suggestions, and there might be possibilities in this passage, but we don't read they acted out. What we have is Naomi's plan. Ruth is dutifully obeying, and Boaz finds himself in a scenario he didn't ask for, but he seems to act honorably. Remain here for the, the night. Remember, it's a time of judges. It's a dangerous time. Ruth, stay here. You'll be safe here. And by the time it's daybreak, you're near, you can go. But don't tell anyone, he says. Doesn't want to, want, want to, want to gossip, does he? Don't, don't, don't tell anyone. But, but you can go there. So that's the implementation of the plan. Boaz is willing to be the redeemer. A huge sigh of relief. Well, is he going to be that redeemer? Let's read the last few verses here. So she lay at his feet until morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he he said, bring the garment that you are wearing and hold it out. And she held it out and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. So even more food from Boaz. But this is like a statement of commitment from him. And and she went into the city. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, how did you fare, my daughter? And then she told her all that had happened. She'd been given this barley. And look at verse 18. And she replied, wait, my daughter. Until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the the matter today. Do you see how that that finishes right there? We've got the plan, we've got the implementation of the plan, and now we've got the big wait, right? It's almost as like Ruth chapter 3 finishes with a lack of resolution. Have you ever ever sat down and watched a film before, and you get up and you feel like it didn't finish with a happy ending that you were looking for? Or, or didn't, it wasn't the restoration of the harmony or the, or the loose ends weren't tied up. You, you can watch a lot, of, a lot of weird European independent movies seem to do that. But they finish with like this, this kind of open-ended, strange ending where it just didn't seem to finish in the way you hoped it would. Now, I'm a big Jurassic Park fan. And, and the last Jurassic Park film just left me wanting. The, the Jurassic Park Fallen Kingdom. You, you, you think this has been a great film. They've rescued all the dinosaurs from this volcano that's exploding. And then the film finishes with all of the dinosaurs colonizing the earth. And it basically finishes with, and all of the humans need to learn how to live with these dinosaurs everywhere. Finish. And I was, Why do you have to open that can of worms? I want to know the next film. And, and I get up and I feel like a big ball of frustration. I wanted the happy ending. I needed that resolution. Please restore the harmony in this film. 
But it's like Ruth chapter 3. We get to the end of it. Boaz is, is a potential redeemer. Boaz is willing to be a redeemer. We heard those words straight from his mouth. But is he going to be that redeemer? Well, you have to wait till chapter 4. We don't know. Now, now here's the thing about chapter 3. We finish it with this tension. And there's been tension all the way through. We finish it with this tension and this lack of resolution. But there is still a profound point in the middle of this. Follow it. You remember what we said at the beginning? Did you see Ruth's faith? Yes, we saw it in bucket loads. All the way through Ruth, she's been committed. She's listened. She's, She's thrown herself upon the mercy of a God who makes covenants and keeps his promises. Her faith has been intentional. Her faith has been effective. But remember what we had to look out for as well as we went through this. How many times did you hear her called a Moabite in that chapter? I didn't read it. Maybe I'm wrong, but I didn't read it. Weren't we told just over and over again in chapter 1 and chapter 2? Yes, we hear it again in chapter 4. But in chapter 3, there's nothing. And then what do we find? Boaz, the redeemer, is willing to be that redeemer. Let's bring those threads together. She's got faith. She was a Moabite, but they don't say Moabite. And we've got this welcome of a redeemer. Bring those together, what do you get? And I think it's really simply this, that God welcomes outsiders like Ruth. God's people embody God's welcome to welcome the other, to welcome the outsider, to welcome the Moabite. Think about that. What are we, the two clear things right here in Ruth so far. Faith from Ruth. And it's a fierce faith. It's a stubborn faith. It's a faith that won't let go. It's a faith that says, your God will be my God. Your people will be my people. And what do we get in Boaz? We find a redeemer who's honorable, who who cares about her more than himself, who puts people above his prophets, who's godly in so many different ways. And you collide these two things, the faith of an outsider, the welcome of a redeemer. What do you get? Really simply this, God welcomes redeemers. Sorry, God welcomes outsiders. The redeemer welcomes outsiders outsiders. I just want to soak in that truth for a little bit, because we've heard that before. You've heard it before. But can we just stop still for a second and kind of allow the Spirit to just peel away the calluses from our hearts to begin to see just how stunning those three words actually are, that God welcomes outsiders. If you could boil this down into three simple statements, three simple words, And if you were to go home with something, I want you to go home with this. Three words. God welcomes outsiders. God has a wide-armed, far-reaching, extensive welcome for people like you and me. God has a grace, a mercy, and a kindness that goes further than we could ever begin to imagine or I can put into words this morning. And here's what the extent of God's far-reaching welcome and his grace means. It's simple, but I think it's life-transforming. Here we go. Anyone and everyone can receive a welcome. And when you see that, and when you know that, and when you experience that, that changes everything. God welcomes outsiders. Do you see in Boaz, we see the embodiment of that welcome. Boaz's character all the way through has demonstrated to us that he knows God's character. But Boaz has left the gleaning on the edge of his field so that the underdogs, the people in need, could have what they need. 
He, he's, been, he's been a great businessman and a boss. We're going to look at that community group this week. He's been amazing. He's been kind. He's been honorable. He's shown self-control. He's put the needs of the others before himself. He knows God's heart. And with knowing God's heart, what does he do? Arms wide open, he welcomes the Moabite. Boaz, the redeemer, welcomes the outsider. Boaz, the redeemer, welcomes the Moabite. Boaz, the redeemer, welcomes the other. And in so doing, shows us that God's people show God's welcome too. You hear that? God and his people welcome outsiders. Now you're sitting there thinking, bring this down to earth a little bit here, James. Who's the Moabite in our lives? Come on, tell us the Moabite so we can go welcome them. But I think we'd be reading this wrong. Who's the Moabite? (laughs) The Moabite's you. The Moabite's me. The outsider. That's us. You see, the wonderful story of Scripture is that, that God has this plan to rescue when humanity has fallen in their sin, evil, evil just riddles every part of our being. God doesn't leave us to fester. He puts a, a, a rescue in place, a rescue plan. And so he, he calls Abraham and says to Abraham, I'm going to make you into a great nation. There's going to be more in this nation than the stars in the sky or the sand on the seashore. And, and I'm going to send his rescuer through. You're going to bless the nations. And of course, Abraham does grow into a great nation. The, the Jewish people, the Israelites... And the hope is there that one day a redeemer will come. And then when the redeemer comes, the world will be blessed. And of course, we see that in the person of Jesus Christ, don't we? Because in Jesus Christ, there is a welcome. In Jesus Christ, we find one who welcomes sinners. In Jesus Christ, we find one with arms wider than we can imagine. He spends time with the outcast. He spends time with the one who's ostracized. He spends time with the one who's fallen short. He spends time with the guilty. That's who Jesus is. And what we find in the life of Jesus is that wide-armed welcome. But in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, this hope of Israel all of a sudden goes global. And this message of salvation in the cross of Jesus Christ and the empty tomb and his resurrection now means that it's not just a hope for Israel. It's a hope that goes to every people, every tribe, and every tongue. That outsiders like you and me, people who were afar off, People who've screwed up, people who can't get it right, can be brought into God's family. You see, we're the outsiders. We're the ones who've been welcomed in. We were the Moabites, and yet he clawed us back, and by his grace has made us his own. I love how this truth is is shown in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12, and I'll read 13 as well. Hear these words. Remember, this is Paul speaking to the Christians at Ephesus. Remember that it that time, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, hear this, and strangers of the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You see, it's through the cross that the outsider has been brought near. You see, it's by the cross, the life, the death, the resurrection of the Redeemer, that the Moabites, the outsiders, the others, people like you and me, we're the ones who have been welcomed. See, in Ruth chapter 3, what do we have? The faith of an outsider. The welcome, the wide-armed, far-reaching welcome of of an insider. Boaz, the redeemer. Applied those together. God welcomes outsiders. People like us. He welcomes us in the person of Jesus. 
I want to bring this down to earth just a little bit more into our lives so we can see how this makes a difference. Really, really simply, I want to make four, four quick points here. Now, remembering that, that in Boaz, we see that God welcomes, welcomes outsiders. And in Boaz, we see, what do we see? God's people embodying his welcome. Number one, you have permission to live and to walk and to be in that acceptance and that welcome. Hear me. You have permission to live in that welcome that the Redeemer gives you. We, we spend most of our lives trying to find a welcome from other things. We, we spend most of our lives trying to get the acceptance and the acknowledgement of the world around us. I'm as guilty as that as any of you are in this room. I know what that feels like. Am I adequate? Am I okay? Will he still love me? Will he welcome me, please? And of course, we know the welcome's a bit shaky, isn't it? And it won't last forever. There's no guarantee. But in Jesus Christ, we have a welcome that doesn't let go. In Jesus Christ, we have a welcome that, that will not give up on you. In Jesus Christ, we have a welcome from a Savior who says, I'll begin this messy journey with you, and I'll bring it to completion at the day of the Lord. But I'm with you. Live in that welcome. Know the joy of that welcome. Know the liberation of that welcome. Be set free by that welcome. Know the delight and the satisfaction that that welcome gives. Second point. The way you welcome the other and the way you welcome the outsider educates them about the God that you serve. Now hear that. The way you welcome the other, the way you treat the outsider, is educating the people around you about God's welcome of them. Now think about this. This, this is true. We have, have it with our kids in the home. Our kids watch us like hawks. And they will very, very quickly see through the way that we live what we value and what we want to emphasize. It happens in the workplace, doesn't it? The, the way that we talk, the way that we, we treat or speak to our boss, or the way we treat our employees will communicate to them about what we find valuable, what we emphasize, what's important. The way we speak to our friends, the way we choose our words, our dispositions, the way we use our stuff, the way we use our time, the way we use our money, how generous we are. That always educates the people around us. So think about this. The way we treat outsiders, the way we welcome them in our everyday lives and even here as a church will educate the other, will educate them on the welcome they can find in Jesus. Thirdly, the way you welcome others is a window into how you've understood God's welcome of you. Now notice this. When you have understood God's forgiveness and you experience it, you feel it. Not, not just in your head, but it just kind of is in every fiber of your being that you've been set free from sin and now you're free to live in Christ. When you know that forgiveness, what's the outflow? You become more and more forgiving. Or, or when you know God's patience and his tenderness and his kindness with you. Not just, not just know it, but know it, know it, feel it, experience it, live it. What happens? You, you, you're more tender, kind, and gracious with those around you. When you know God's grace awash in your own life, you then become more gracious with others. And the same is true with a welcome. When we know the wide arms of Jesus and we stand in it, we've experienced it, we're spellbound by it, what happens? It begins, begins to outflow in our lives. It permeates the way we talk. It permeates the way we live. If we know God's welcome, we'll begin to show it. But of course, it's knowing God's welcome. You know what I always say to you guys? Look, you, our biggest struggle it is not our discipline, our devotion, and our focus. The biggest struggle in our lives is believing the fact 
that there is a God with a welcome wider and a love more extensive than we could ever imagine. But the way you welcome others will show, will show what you believe about God's welcome of you. And lastly, this is a key one. If there's there's anyone in here this morning who is looking for that kind of a welcome from a redeemer, if there's anyone in here looking for that welcome, can I say to you, I've got really, 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 really good news for you. Because there is a redeemer with wide open arms, extensive grace, and a kindness like you've never seen in this world before. Jesus welcomes you. And he says, come to me. Put down the sin. Put down the past. Let go of those mistakes. Come to me and I will wash you and I will make you new. There's a wonderful story in Luke chapter 15. You know the story, prodigal son. I'll tell it anyway. It's a great story. There's, there's, there's a boy, a, a, a man, a young man. He says to his dad, I'd rather you dead. Give me your money. I'm going. He squanders his father's wealth, suddenly comes to a point of realization. Whoops, I've got nothing left. I'm eating the food that the pigs eat. I think I'd better go home. But what I'm going to do is going to plead with my father that he'll take me in. Maybe he'll give me the worst job in the household. Maybe he'll do that. So he sets off home. And with a repentant spirit, with the grieving over his sin and the mess, what does he find? A father who slaps him on the wrist and puts him on the naughty step? No. A father who gives him the worst job in the household? No. A father who sends him back to the pigs to go and eat what the pigs eat? No. A father who bounds across the field towards him. A father with the wide arms of welcome. What does a father do? Flings his arms around him, kisses him, robe on his back, shoes on his feet, ring on his finger, slaughter that fattened calf, we're having a party, and they celebrate. What does that show you? Jesus' story about the prodigal son shows us that God has a welcome. A welcome for the Moabite. A welcome for the outsider. A welcome for the other. If you're looking for that welcome, if you're looking for that welcome, can I tell you there's a redeemer who will save you from your sin, who will forgive you, who will set you free and begin to show you what the new life in him looks like and all of the vitality that it brings. If you're looking for that welcome, throw yourself on this redeemer who goes by the name of Jesus Christ, who is alive and well today. The beautiful thing about Ruth chapter three is this collision of the faith of an outsider, the welcome of a redeemer. And we see that truth, that God and his people welcome outsiders because we've been welcomed too okay so let's pray and then we're going to turn to communion together lord we want to thank you we want to thank you that there is a welcome for people like us people in our sin and our mess people with our mistakes and our track records people with our stains and blemishes people who just can't find the answer inside of themselves but there is a welcome for us If there's a welcome for a Moabite, there's a welcome for me, there's a welcome for us. Help us to see that. Make us sensitive to the truth, alive to it, that you have welcomed us. And Father, your arms in the person of Jesus Christ are wide open and far-reaching. Let's run into that welcome. And we're praying in Jesus' name. Amen.